Okay, so at any point along the way, because we're, we are going to go rather deep into this epistle, so there are going to be things there that are going to be somewhat difficult to understand, you know, at first pass. So if there's anything you don't understand or that you're having a hard time that I'm not making myself clear on, please raise your hand. Um, one of the reasons why I didn't want to do this in the main sanctuary is because I don't want to, because when you're in the main sanctuary like that, it automatically come, you know, seems to turn into a sermon environment, right? I don't want to be up there just preaching a sermon. Uh, this will be the third time that I've taught through the book, but those other two times were taught through as sermons. I want this to be more interactive. Uh, and you know, I, I, w I would like you to start using some of those um, skills that you've learned in Bible study methods as you go through some of the more complex passages in the book. So, uh, and then understand something that, that, uh, that ultimately all of the time that we spend in the scriptures, all the, all the time that we spend studying should result in changes, right? It becomes, it, it, it causes us to change internally and that internal change also leads to external change, right? We, we have to put into practice the things, things that we're going to be confronted with this. Having said that, this is really one of the most challenging books in the New Testament to, to understand and learn. So <clears throat> when we, there, it seems to be that we have a hard time seeing past that what seems to be a hard break between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? And so what I love about this book is that it really integrates the two. It really integrates how all of the things in the Old Covenant were just pointing to something that would be fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, you know? And there are, there are things there that it, it really makes you stop and think. So I've been at the same time going through and now doing a re-exposition of the book of Judges. And so I just cleared that passage with Jephthah, the judge Jephthah. Everybody, anybody know what was unusual or remember about the judge Jephthah? What did Jephthah do? It was called Jephthah's rash vow. So you remember that, that uh, he said, Lord, he says, if you give me victory, uh, once I get that victory, I will sacrifice the first thing that walks through the threshold of my door. And it was his daughter. So, hello. So he, was, he, so he had to sacrifice his daughter. Now, the interesting thing is, is he actually didn't need to do it because according to Le Leviticus 27, verse 1, he could have redeemed his daughter from that vow which showed that he was ignorant of the scriptures, right? So there's how, how, how all of this comes in place together. Welcome, guys. I have notes for you. So that's the, you know, that, that's the difficult part is how to integrate the Old Testament into, uh, into the teachings and how they come to full fruition in the Messiah. So uh, as the title suggests, this book has a Jewish focus. So while the writer is concerned here with the behaviors of the Messianic Jewish community, and it's important to understand that for the first 40 years of the church, those who were in the church were primarily Jewish believers. 
And so the Jewish believers were basically made up of two groups. It's there in the notes, but just to, uh, just to briefly run through it. So you had two groups of Messianic Jews. You had the group that was called the Palestinian Jewish believers. Now, the Palestinian Jewish believers were those who were living in the land of Israel, and they tended to be more conservative. They tended to be... Uh, Economically, they needed; they tended to be the poorer class. And then you had the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jew, Jewish believers were those who were living, you know, in what was called a diaspora. And that term diaspora means ten cities. So they were living in ten cities out from Palestine. And they were more affluent. They tended to be more, uh, more, um, have more money. And they tended to be more wanting to adopt to a Hellenistic culture. Therefore, they spoke Greek, and the Greek Septuagint was written for them. So this epistle is written to them. And so, um, so there, then there's that. So while the writer is concerned with behaviors and beliefs that are unique to a Jewish mindset, there are many parallels to what we find in belief and practice in the church today many of them erroneous. So now if you were to, so let's take, let's see if we can make a comparison here. So let's say that the more conservative wing of evangelical Christianity, can you name a denomination that would be uh, a more conservative wing of evangelical Christianity? Okay, Baptists or regular Baptists. So let's say that they, if we were to kind of transpose this into the culture, they would be uh, more aligned with the Palestinian Jewish believers. Now let's go over towards the more liberal wing of evangelical Christianity. Who, who could you name as a denomination that would seem to, what's that? Pente okay, Pentecostal, that's a, actually a good one. So the Pentecostals would be more in line with the Hellenistic Jewish community Jewish believers of the diaspora, right? And so we can see that there is, there is a contact there because the Hellenistic Jews tended to be more liberal and more, more accepting of the things of the culture. And we find that that lines up with what's going on today in, in, in mainline evangelical Christianity. All kinds of things are accepted today that would not be accepted and, and that are eschewed by some of the more conservative denominations. Okay, so the study of Hebrews is rewarding to those who persevere in understanding it. It requires the student to up their game and work hard to understand and interpret it properly. So that's what I'm here to do, is I'm here to help you uh, understand, understand it and to help you interpret it correctly. There are even some things that in the past I have misinterpreted that I have read in this, uh, in this epistle. So this is where I would like you to, so, you know, Krista asked me today, is there any homework? No, the only homework that, that I asked that you would do is to read through the chapter. So we're going to be working in chapter one for the next, this week and next week, is to read through chapter one. And if you see any words in there, uh, let the Holy Spirit guide you. You know what? I need to take a deeper look at what this word is saying. Do that and record that. So it's going to require all of us to up our game and work hard to understand and interpret it properly. 
proper understanding and interpretation of its message requires knowing its truth fully and then living up to its demand. So, uh, so God gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us spiritual life to be able to understand his word, to be able to know that we are recipients of grace, to be able to know that we have been adopted as children, uh, and to be able to correctly read, understand, and apply God's word. So when we come to understand something, it behooves uh, it behooves us that we have to we have to change in that area, and we have to adopt what the scriptures are telling us to do. So it's not just about theology. So its central themes are pressing on to spiritual maturity, leaving behind old thinking, and seeking to please the Lord. As I said a few minutes ago, this is my third time teaching through the book in one way or another. As I continue to study, grow, and mature, there are certain points and views that I have held in the past that have matured and come to a deeper understanding of the text. As such, in this round of exposition, I am, in a sense, leaving behind old thinking. And so there, there's, there's understanding that I have come subsequent to, to all of the years that I've been studying the Bible that that is not new in the sense of I'm reinterpreting the passage, but that I'm coming to a deeper understanding of what the passage is saying and what its application is. And so <clears throat> this is the way Bible study works. Bible study is dynamic, not static. Every time you study a book, <coughs> excuse me, your knowledge is going to increase. You're going to see things. There are subtexts in the scripture that you may not see on the first or second pass, but that God will show you on the third and subsequent passes. So the more you study, the deeper your level of understanding is, <coughs> and, the, and the, the deeper level of understanding that God will allow you to see. Okay. So the continuous study of Scripture is not static but dyna dynamic. With each pass, you gain a deeper understanding and see deeper levels of meaning. And you get to... God shows you the subtexts that are in there. As to the authorship, so tonight is just an introduction, um, just to set some of the background information behind the epistle, and we'll cover uh, the first three verses tonight. So uh, there are various suggestions as to who wrote the book. Uh, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Clement of Rome, and several others. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the author indicates that he was a second-generation Jewish believer, meaning that he was not eyewitness, not an eyewitness of the ministry of Christ. Let's turn there for a moment in our Bibles and read that. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, we read, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard, who heard him. So the author here is, is identifying himself as someone who had not personally heard the Lord. And so, uh, you know, it could have been, and, and incidentally, this is one of the only, um, this is one of the only writings in the Bible that, that does not have apostolic authorship. Right, we don't know who this is, and you know it may have been someone who who journeyed with an apostle. 
you know, who went with an apostle as he taught and as he planted churches. But the reality is we just don't know. And the fact of the matter is some say it's Barnabas. It couldn't have been Paul because Paul was an eyewitness to the Savior and heard the Savior. Uh, maybe Clement of Rome. Who knows? The reality is, is if God wanted us to definitively know who the author was, he would have told us that. He would have indicated to that. Okay. So the, the writing there, that's actually a misprint. It should be 64 or 65 to around 69 AD. So think, put on your history hats. What was going on in this time in Palestine? Between the, between the uh, years of 67 and 70 A.D. That's right, Jerusalem was under siege. So this epistle was written during the time that, the, that Jerusalem was under siege. And you'll see the, one, of the, one of the things that the author reemphasizes throughout the entire epistle is the old things are passing away, right? And so in that, you know, you see that the, 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 whole, the whole temple worship system was on the threshold of being completely dismantled and destroyed. Okay, so in the Holy Land, Jerusalem was now under siege, and I think they were under siege two or three years by, by Titus, and eventually in 70 AD, the walls were breached, and uh, and they entered the holy city, and the the account I don't know if you guys like to read history by Josephus the uh, the uh, Jewish Roman wars is a fascinating writing and it details the siege of Jerusalem and and uh, and just what happened during that time that uh, you know the the Romans essentially cut down every tree within a twenty mile radius of Jerusalem in order to build you know their siege engines and and what they and how they would besiege the city walls and stuff and what happened when they actually breached the walls and went into the city anyway this is going on in palestine while the hebrew while the writer here is writing to the hellenistic jewish messianic jewish community that was living outside the land of palestine okay all right <coughs> So, as I said before, there were two schools of Jewish believers, Palestinian and Hellenistic. The readers were Hellenistic Jewish believers. These believers were typically more liberal in their views and practice, and they made a point to integrate into Greek culture. They spoke and read Greek and used the Septuagint, whereas the Palestinian Jews used the Hebrew text. They were taught through letters and visits by Paul and other apostles but they were also heavily influenced by false teachers and Judaizers who traveled from place to place countering Paul's teaching with their own false theology. So this was something that these guys dogged Paul throughout all his missionary journeys. So Paul would go into, he would go into a, a region, and of course, when you read the book of Acts, the first place that he would go would be where? When he went to a new community. Synagogues. Into the synagogues, right? So he would go into the synagogues, he would spend time there, and he would, you know, teach them the principles of the new covenant and how it integrated with, you know, with the teachings of the old covenant. And then he would leave. And as soon as he would leave, the false prophets and the Judaizers would come in behind him and say, well, yeah, what Paul was teaching was right. 
but he forgot to tell you this. You also need to do this, right? And so that's where you have Galatians being brought back under a yoke of bondage. And, uh, and so, so this was constantly something that the apostles had to struggle with. And so they were really being knocked off course by these Judaizers who were coming in. Uh, like So such theology included the belief that the law was still in effect and that believers had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Like all the Jewish epistles, Hebrews shares a common theme. They dispute Jewish, Jewish folklore and myth. And so you'll see as we go through Hebrews that he's constantly going back into the Old Testament. And he's, why he, he's doing that because he's pulling things that as a Jewish person you would be very familiar with. So he's using familiar stories in order to make his point how, how that which is new now supersedes that which is old. Which means that as we go through these passages, because we're not Jewish, right, we don't have the familiarity with, with Jewish customs and Jewish folklore. Like, you know, Nancy and I were talking a little bit today about the Book of Enoch, right? So how many of you here have heard about the Book of Enoch, right? And so you may have heard about it, but this, this was a very familiar writing to Jews, to Jews in and out of Palestine during that time. In, in the Bible, you'll also, in the Old Te Testament, here refer to the Book of Jubilees, right? Those are, they're called apocryphal books, and so, but they are, they were works that Jews were very familiar with. And so, you know, remember when in Jude, where Jude quotes from the Book of Enoch? He quoted from the Book of Enoch because Jude was what? Jude was a Jewish epistle. And he was quoting from a work that though it was not canonical, though it was not scripture, he knew that Jewish believers would be very familiar with what he was referring to. We find that time and time again in the book of Hebrews. Because we're not as familiar with it as they were, we need to go back, we'll need to go back and, and take a look at some of those passages in order to understand his point. Okay, they reorient their understanding of Jewish history and scripture they contend with simplistic assumptions about God and remind them of the serious nature of their own salvation and coming judgment. Something that is, is uh, the importance of which is not lacking on the church today, right? Okay. Although they had believer, been believers for a long time, they had, they had remained in a state of spiritual immaturity. This is a real serious issue with God. It's a real serious issue. And as you'll see as we move to the text in the book of Hebrews that you can cross a line there you know we're all saved right and and there's nothing that we can do to forfeit our salvation why because we're saved by the grace of God but that salvation that grace enables us to do certain things right to to walk a certain way to understand certain truths and to implement those truths in our lives. One of the truths, one of the things that God expects from us is that we're going to continue to grow. The process is called sanctification, right? So sanctification is cooperative in a sense that as we learn from the scriptures, we're expected to implement it from our life. And we're expected to walk 
So we come into the faith as spiritual babies, right? But, but we walk through our life, however long the Lord gives us in our lives, we are to walk ever towards greater degrees of spiritual maturity. And the reality is there are those who in the history of the church have refused to do that. They would just rather stay in their state of spiritual immaturity, and that is a predominant problem in the church today, is it not? But the thing is, is and you'll see when we get into the text, you could cross a line with God where he says, that's it. You had your chance. You're not growing anymore. You're locked into that state of spiritual immaturity. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it has everything to do with the degree of spiritual maturity and therefore fellowship with God that you can attain in this life. Believe it or not, there are people who have, would anyone here deny that there are people, there are varying degrees of closeness with God that people experience in this life. Well, what do you think that's based upon? The one who has, who has a closer relationship with God is the one who has sought them out more diligently. It says, I, I think it's in the book of Proverbs, or if not Proverbs, the book of Psalms, I love those who love me. So here God is defining what he considers to be love, right? And the structure of Jewish poetry is the second half of that stanza says, and those who seek me diligently will find me. So you tell me, what has God put up as a litmus test of loving him? Seeking him diligently. So you could cross a line there, and that's very clear, and you'll see that as we get into the chapter in Hebrews, that you could cross a line where, that's it. You've, you've let it go too long, and as a means of chastisement, God is going to lock you into your state of spiritual maturity. You're saved, but remember, <laughs> we have to remember this. We all still have a judgment ahead of us, do we not? It's at the judgment seat of Christ, where there will be a lots of rewards. So, you know, I've struggled with trying to wrap my mind about the whole concept of rewards. And it's kind of like when we come into salvation, God gives us a whole treasure chest. It all comes, it's given all to us. A treasure chest of rewards. They're all ours. And what we do, depending upon whether we obey or disobey, what he expects from us is we either kick, keep them or, oh, no, there goes that one, there goes that one, there goes that one, there goes that one. And so that when we end up at the Bema seat, when we're judged, you know, instead of having a, tre a treasure chest full of rewards that have been given to us, now we've got like one quarter, one eighth. I mean, that's the way that I've been able to wrap my mind around it. That may not be the way it is, but I know that this, the text is very clear that the believer will face a judgment before Christ and he will suffer the loss of rewards, right? So if you're losing rewards, it means you must have had them at one time. If you didn't have them at one time, then you can't lose them. You can't lose what you never had, right? Okay, so this is a big thing. There are five warnings that come in the book of Hebrews that all revolve around this thing. It revolves around staying locked into a state of spiritual immaturity, of, of, uh, of going back. So there's always this tension 
for the Jewish people of going back, right? Going back to the old way of doing things. And that's not so different for us as Gentiles because don't we always, aren't we always in a struggle to go back to the old ways we used to do things? When things get tough, when we get into a pickle, you know, when we get under stress, going back towards the old coping mechanisms, towards the old things that we used to use and how we were able to face such stressful situations. So this is an important theme in Hebrews. Okay. <clears throat> Although, okay, so we already went through that. So, uh, all right, let me read that. So point of contacts with the church today. Hellenistic Jews placed an inappropriate and unhealthy emphasis on myth, supernatural, folklore, and particularly angels. And so, so the author basically, he doesn't attack, but he, he makes his point to the Hebrew Messianic Jews on the three pillars of Judaism. What are the three pillars of Judaism? Angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. That's the entire book of Hebrews right there. Angels, you'll see, he gets right into that in the second half of, of, um, of Hebrews chapter 1. He goes to angels. Angels, even to this day, are a big deal for Jews. Why? Why are they a big deal? Because all of the revelation of the Old Covenant came through the mediation of what? Angels. The angel of the Lord. Right? We recognize the angel of the Lord as? Huh? Oh, my goodness. You made the mistake. Not Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. The pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus wasn't Jesus until he was born in Nazareth. Okay? <laughs> That's a big technicality. Right? So, so everything came, so, the, and they, so they still look at those appearances as angels. Right? What gave the law on Mount Sinai? Angels. What led them through the wilderness? The angel of the Lord. Okay? So angels are a big deal. Moses, Moshe, Moshe. You know, if you're a Jew, Moses is top, he's the top gun in Judaism, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. All right. So those are the three pillars of Judaism that the author of Hebrews uh, it just makes his case to the Messianic Jewish believers who, who, had a twofold problem. One is they were embracing the culture in which they they had embraced the culture in which they were living in to the degree that they were really not recognizably different than the surrounding than the surrounding community. Is that a problem that we see today? And two, uh, they you know they but they still had they still had an affinity and attachment to the things of Judaism, the feast, the Passover, Moses, so on and so forth. Okay. All right. <clears throat> the writer of this letter worried that some in the church assembly had heard the gospel without actually embracing it. Right? So you'll see he makes this point here is that he was worried that there were some in the church who, who actually were not believers. They thought themselves to be believers, but they weren't actually believers. So he keeps he keeps going after this. Is this a problem? Is this something that we're concerned about in the church today? 
you know, maybe, maybe not so much, you know, a small church like ours, but, you know, in my visitations of other churches, I've, I've been to churches where the people were hanging from the rafters. There were so many of them, and it almost looked like it was like, where's the high wire act? When is the trapeze act going to begin? There were so many people there, and, and I'm like, well, what are they here for? Because I'm hearing the message, and there was nothing there really of any depth. So what are they there for? Are they not seeing the same thing? Are they not hearing the same things that I'm hearing that, you know, that hell, the word hell isn't mentioned at all. You know, they, that they stay only to the positive side. So this is a concern that we see today. Uh, the writer warned believers not to live in a perpetual state of spiritual immaturity, oblivious to the coming judgment. Yet so many believers today are entrapped by the cares, pleasures, worries, and riches of this life. And they are ill-prepared to meet the Lord at his coming. So while the stumbles of these Hellenistic churches were uniquely Jewish in nature, the underlying spiritual problems are common to all believers. The believers were wavering in their faith because of persecution, the Judaizers, and they coupled with spiritual immaturity. So they were really susceptible. Okay, the overall context of Hebrews is dealing with Jewish believers who were spiritually mature. Because of this immaturity, they were being beguiled by false teachers who followed Paul and true teachers into a region after they had departed. As a result, they were seriously considering going back to Judaism. <coughs> the writer wants to warn the readers against going back to Judaism. The, Ju uh, the Judaism warned against indicates the Judaism of the Levitical system. The writer here is writing within the con context of the coming judgment of 70 AD, which was judgment for the unpardonable sin. <coughs> this is interesting. I want you to think about this for a moment. The unpardonable sin was, not a, na was a national sin, not an, in not an individual one and is only uh, applicable to the Jewish generation of Jesus' day, not to subsequent Jewish generations. The, um, the judgment of the unpardonable sin was the destruction of Jerusalem, which was underway by this time, remember, uh, and the temple and the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. The writer's warning is this, and this is the part that you know, I'd like to get some feedback on. If the readers that he's writing to go back into Judaism now, they will re-identify themselves with the generation guilty of the unpardonable sin and will place themselves back under the judgment of 70 AD. What do you think about that? Donna? Yes, by, that would be actually the default position, is that they, they were never really safe to begin with. Thus, they were never... But, but think about this. So, uh, by the way, this is Fruchtenbaum. So, according to Fruchtenbaum, the unpardonable sin resulted in the destruction 
of Jerusalem, the temple, and the scattering of the Jews, right? So he's unclear as to whether or not he considers to be the, that unpardonable sin to be something that carries on into eternity or just has consequences in this life, right? Richard? Yes, and also, don't forget, the, the covenant on Mount Sinai was a national covenant. So that national covenant required obedience to all points of the law that was given on Mount Sinai by every member of the Jewish people. And any violation on behalf of one person constituted a violation by the entire nation, by everybody, right? And so now you come forward to, <coughs> to Jesus' ministry and the, the Jewish religious leaders were acting as representatives of the people. Again, you mentioned the concept of federal headship. And so when they declared that Jesus had been working his miracles by the power of Satan, that constituted blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You'll realize from that point on, that's Matthew chapter 12, from Matthew 13 on, God, Jesus speaks only in parables. And that's the reason why. Because now they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit and placed themselves under judgment. And so the gospel, uh, the offer of the kingdom was rescinded at that point temporarily. Temporarily, right? Let's make sure we're not supersessionists. Temporarily. And, and was from that point on, Jesus only spoke in parables and he, you know, he broke down the message of the parables to his disciples afterwards. And so there was that national judgment that happened. Now, <clears throat> now according to Fruchtenbaum, and I would tend to agree with him, if you were, if you were claiming to be a Messianic Jew, there would be two ways to think about this. If you were claiming to be a believer in, in Jesus as the Messiah, and you were Jewish, and you were attending, you know, the synagogue, right? That, that's where they went, the synagogue. And, you know, um, you just began to felt, feel uncomfortable with things, whatever, and you decided to go back into Judaism, full bore, then you're placing yourself under the judgment of 70 AD once again, right? So, or... Or the other way to think about, but which means that you were never really a, a believer in Jesus to begin with, right, of necessity. Or the other way to think about it is you were a genuine believer in Jesus as the Messiah. And by going back into Judaism, you place yourself under the physical judgments of 70 AD. I'm not sure which one is right, right? But that's 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 seems to be what the author is implying here in some way, shape, or form. What? You, well, you, in the physical, in physical, well, you get killed, you know. You, the physical consequences of that judgment would be, not today, in that day, okay. 
in 70 AD, right? No, 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 in that day. No. So that was a that was a sin that the unpardonable sin can only be committed during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Because you're attributing the works of the Holy Spirit work through Jesus the Messiah to Satan. Right? So that was the unpardonable sin. Yes. They violated 22 of their own laws. Yep. No, because you would. Yep. Yeah. Remember the account of the of the uh, the man who was born blind, that Jesus healed, and you remember they called his parents in onto the carpet, so to speak. What's what's this your son is telling people? Well, how do we know? Ask him. You know, they washed their hands of it, right? And. And the, the young man who had been healed came in and said, you guys are the teachers of Israel, and you don't know who this guy is? So, you know, what did they do? They put him out of the synagogue. What did that mean? To be put out of the synagogue mean you were basically washed up. You lost your family. You lost your position, your possessions. You lost everything to be put out of the synagogue. You would be treated worse than a leper being put out of the synagogue. So that level of intimidation would keep people from, from speaking up because they had that much power. And the religious leaders, that's really what they were all about was maintaining their power, right? So, so anyway, you know, that the, there's, there's something about that in here um, that, that we see. All right, time is running short, so. The writer's warning is this, under five. If readers go back into Judaism now, they will re-identify themselves with the generation guilty of unpardonable sin and will place themselves back under the judgment of 70 AD. As to whether or not that judgment is only as to the physical consequences of living at that time or the eternal consequences, that, that doesn't make sense to me because it would need to mean you, you were never a believer to begin with, right? So I would lean towards the physical, yes. Yep. Yeah, well. Yep. No, they, that was a concern of the writer to Hebrews, that there were those who were in that community, the Messianic Jewish community, who had not in reality embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And you'll see that. Why? Because what does he have to argue in the second half of Romans chapter 1? That Jesus is superior to the angels. 
So there were those who were part of that community who still believed that angels were superior to Jesus. So he has to show them by using their texts in the Old Testament that, in fact, those texts, those texts, in fact, identified the Messiah as being superior to angels. And by the way, even today, modern Judaism believes, they do not believe that the Messiah will be divine. They believe that in any, in any generation, there, there are several people who would qualify as being the Messiah. The Messiah will be 100% human. And so you can see within, and that's where we have the difficulty shifting, making the shift. It's, it's difficult for us to imagine how anyone could think that angels would be superior to the Messiah, right? But because we're coming, we're coming from a different cultural perspective. If you are coming from a Jewish perspective, you would understand perfectly why this would be a struggle for Jewish Christians because Jewish teaching has remained consistent all along from the time of, you know, so a lot of this stuff was codified in Judaism, you know, within a century or two of, of the birth of Christ, right, the ministry of Christ. They put up these things called fence laws, right? And so this has been the consistent teaching and understanding from generation to generation to generation of Jewish people for 2,000 years. So you could see how someone would struggle with this. So yes, that, that's a good point. Thank you for making it. Okay, so uh, the author's methodology, his method was to show the superiority of the Messiah over the system of Judaism. The contrast is not between what is good and bad, because the whole sacrificial system was given by God. The contrast is between what is good and better. Biblical Judaism was good, but the Messiah is better. As the author expounds on the good and the better, he takes the three main pillars of Judaism, of the Judaism of the day, angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood, and shows, shows that what the readers now have in the Messiah is superior to all three pillars of Judaism. Okay. Yes. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, they're angels, right? They're angels. So if you look at Isaiah 53, right? What's Isaiah 53? I mean, that is, you know, the, the textbook Old Testament passage that prophesies the work of, of the Messiah, right? But what do they do? If you go read their commentaries by their most esteemed uh, commentators, what they say is they say that Isaiah 53 is not referring to the Messiah, but it's referring to Israel as a nation. See, Israel as a nation has been called to suffer so that through their suffering, God would bring about the world to come or the messianic age, you see? And that's how, that's how they do that. Uh, you know, so. All right. Okay, so there are two main divisions of the text. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 1018. 
focuses on the preeminence of the Son in his person and work. This section is primarily the theological with some application. It is in this section that the author shows the Messiah is superior to the three pillars of Judaism. And from chapter 10, verses 19 to the end of the book, focuses on the practical application of the preeminence of the Son in the walk of the believer. So he spends all that time flushing this out, and then he says, okay, now this is how it needs to impact your life and your walk. <coughs> okay. This section is primarily application with some theology. After showing the superiority of the Son to the three pillars of Judaism in the first section, in this section he answers the question, what difference does it make? All right, so let's see, we have a few minutes left. Let's see if we can clear the first three verses. The preeminence of the Son and superiority of his revelation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it speaks about in old times or in times past, God spoke in two ways. It says in various ways or in various portions. God chose not to give his entire revelation in the past all at once, but chose to give it in successive portions. And so this can be understood in three ways. Some of the prophetic writings were short, right? Can anybody name a short prophetic writing? Uh, let's go Old Testament. Old Testament prophets, right? Yeah, some of them were like Haggai, right? Short. Some of them were long. Isaiah, Ezekiel, right? So, so some of the prophetic writings were short, such as Obadiah, which is only one chapter long, while others were many chapter long. Some prophets only ministered for one month. Haggai, while others ministered an entire lifetime. The point is, is that none of them had the complete revelation. The bits and pieces. God called prophets, and he gave them bits and pieces of information. And that those bits and pieces of information were spread out over time. Right? It didn't come all at once. It didn't come all in the same age. You know, uh, you, know you had uh, Ezra... I think was ministering at the same time as Nehemiah and I think Haggai maybe I think they were three contemporaries and each one of them had a piece you know and they had different lengths of ministry so none of them had the entire complete revelation and it came in various ways so it came in various times and in various ways visions uh, sometimes in uh, rules and regulations, dreams, sometimes in prophecies. And it, was, it, it came to the fathers by the prophets in this way, bits and pieces scattered over time. You know, sometimes depending upon the life of the prophet, uh, and, you know, not all of the prophets prophesied throughout the entire nation of Israel. You know, sometimes 
their, their prophetic ministry was limited to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom and various lengths. All right. So that's how that prophetic information came, bits and pieces over the course of time. So it says that that's how God in various times spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Various lengths, various times, various means, visions, apparitions, dreams, so on and so forth. But in these last days, which literally means at the time of the last days. So how do we know that we're at the time of the end, at the time of the last days? How do we know that? No, we, it's, it's right there. We know that it's the last days because the last days come with the coming of the Messiah. Right? So, so in these last days, he has spoken to us. So with the coming of the Messiah, right, what, everything that God had left to say to humanity, everything that he had left to reveal has come. And it all came. So see, that's the difference here, and you know he'll he'll make this point later on, and also in chapter one, that while prophets, you know Moses was considered a prophet. Moses is considered even today the greatest prophet of Judaism, but he didn't have all of the revelation. He had parts of it. Isaiah had parts of it, but Jesus, when he came, he had it all. All within him, all at once all the same time, and God has nothing more to say to humanity that has not been fully and finally said through the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay. So, everything that God has left to say to mankind, he has said to us through his son. So, the position of the son, seven statements as to why the son is eligible to be the final revealer and authenticator of divine revelation. Number one, he was made the heir of all things. This points to his being the focal point of the universe because he is the goal of history. And this is, among other places, perfectly spelled out in Psalm chapter 2, right? In Psalm 2. All right. The son is through whom he also made the worlds. The Greek word here means ages. Literally, it reads, through whom he made the ages the beginning point of the universe and the beginning point of history. It says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. The Son is the revealer. It is the Son who reveal, reveals God, or he is the effulgence of his glory. He is the brightness of his glory. The sun reveals the fullness of deity, the Shekinah glory. That word effulgence means to radiate or to shine out. So you don't see, when you look up at the sun, you're not seeing the sun. You're seeing the light that's radiating from the sun, but you don't actually see the sun. That's kind of like what we see here. When we see, when we see Jesus, if Jesus has been revealed, is like seeing the radiance of the sun. You're seeing God when you see him. You see the, the radiance of God 
through Jesus. All right. Okay, John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Son is the very image of his substance. He is the very character of God's substance. Five, he is the sustainer. He upholds all things by the power of his word. It does not mean just to hold together, but to carry it towards a goal. So you read in the scripture when Jesus accomplished his work that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, right? So that is, that is a thing that Jewish people would understand. When a person is working, he stands up. When he sits down, he has ceased from all his work. So what this is referring to is that by the word of his power, once he spoke it, it goes out and it accomplishes its will. And that is bringing it towards the conclusion that God has ordained that it should come for. So Jesus is not currently standing up, holding everything together. This is a point where I've been mistaken in the past. But that once he spoke the word, he is the word. Once he spoke that word, it moves forward and accomplishes what, what he will have it accomplish while he is seated now at rest at the right hand of the Father. Does that make any sense? Am I confusing you? Okay. Because I know some of you are easily confused. No. <laughs> okay. All right. In Colossians 1.17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Number six, he is the Redeemer. He made purification of sins. There are four aspects to this. Number one, it was exclusive. He made it by himself, and no one else provided this redemption. B, it achieved the, a sacrificial work of cleansing because he made purification. C, it is a finished work as seen by the use of the Greek aorist participle. It is already done, and there is nothing else that needs to be done. D, it is not merely an outward cleansing, but a purification of sins. And seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign of the universe and has completed his work. Okay, so the son is qualified to be a unique revealer superior to the prophets. He is the final revealer. He is the authenticator of all previous revelations that God gave by various times and by various means. And God has nothing more to say to mankind. Everything we need has been given to us in the full culmination of the Son. Great sadness or great joy awaits those who choose one or the other. But make no mistake about this. All must, all must make a choice. And so everyone has to choose. And so I'm assuming that all of you are believers and you've made a choice. And you are forever secure in that choice. But you still have more to do. Right now, God expects us to increase in our knowledge and understanding of him. And that should calibrate how we live our lives. Right. What are we called to do? We're called to be. Progressively conformed to the image of his son. And so we're responsible for the things that we learn. Right. And so. OK. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? So when we come back next week, he gets into going back to the Old Testament 
and showing them that they were mistaken in their understanding that angels were superior to the Messiah. That it was in fact the teaching of the Old Testament actually reversed their understanding. The Messiah was always prophesied to be superior to the angels. Okay. Yes. Yes, just read chapter one, and I'll have I have another n some more notes for you for next. <laughs>